Well, with that said, let's go ahead and read our text this morning, which will be John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. John 10, 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Let me read together in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You know, Jesus famously observed that the rulers of the Gentiles, he says, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In saying that, Jesus was simply pointing out that unbelieving rulers in this fallen world typically use their positions of authority to serve their own interests. This has proven true for most rulers throughout history, with very few exceptions. Over and over, we have seen people rise to power on the basis of promises to serve the interests of the people, only to turn around and use their power to dominate and exploit the people for their own personal gain. Perhaps the most striking example of this from recent history is the leaders of the Soviet Revolution who took control of the Russian government on the promise of overthrowing the oppressive rule of the bourgeois elite and to transfer wealth and power into the hands of the working class. But instead, they seized the wealth of the Tsarist aristocracy for themselves and established a totalitarian regime which systematically murdered tens of millions of peasants and plunged the working class into a tightly controlled life of dreary poverty. 
A similar pattern was followed by Mao Zedong in China, Fidel Castro in Cuba, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, and I could go on. Of course, it's not just communist regimes, is it? The same kind of thing has happened with dictators like Hitler and Mussolini in Europe, Idi Amin in Uganda, Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, and you could go on. But all these examples are just from the last 100 years. Many, many more could be cited from throughout recorded history, and these are just the worst examples. I mean, the truth is that even in relatively good governments like our own, still riddled with corruption and feature many leaders who use their authority to exploit those under them for their personal gain, rare is the human ruler who is truly benevolent, who uses his authority to serve the interests of those under him, even at personal cost to himself. The few who exist don't last very long. So people keep looking for another and often think they found him only to find that the utopian vision which he promised was merely a smokescreen concealing a nightmare. A nightmare often very difficult to dispel. Will there ever be an end to this search? Is there any ruler out there who might lead his people with righteousness, with sacrificial love, bringing peace and joy to his people, and do so forever? Well, the text we've come to this morning announces good news. There is such a one. Let's take a closer look at this story here in John 10, 1 through 18 to see what I mean. Just by way of context here, I've mentioned this many times at this section of the book, chapters 5 through 10. It's often been called the festival cycle because it features many events which took place when Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the festivals, one of the feasts that dotted the Jewish calendar. Uh, for the last three chapters, in other words, since the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, sometimes it's simply called Tabernacles. And he will still be there now as we come to the beginning of chapter 10. Now these trips to Jerusalem to celebrate various festivals, you remember I also mentioned that they are marked by increasing conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And that conflict has gotten very intense during this particular festival, the Feast of Booths. In chapter 7, you remember, the Jews sent officers to arrest Jesus, but were unable to do so. At the end of chapter 8, they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. And in chapter 9, he healed a man who had been born blind, and when that man stubbornly testified to the Pharisees that Jesus had done it and that he must be a prophet, they put the man out of the synagogue. And you remember that as we came to the end of chapter 9, Jesus found that man, revealed to him his true identity as the Son of Man, and he believed in him. And then the chapter ended, it says, with Jesus telling some Pharisees 
who were standing nearby that they were the ones who were truly blind because they refused to believe in him. So chapter 9 ended with Jesus confronting and condemning certain leaders of Israel for refusing to believe in him themselves and also threatening to punish any of their fellow Israelites who did so, to cast them out of the synagogue like this man who had formerly been blind. This provides the background to chapter 10. When Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to these Pharisees mentioned in chapter 9, verse 40, whom he had just condemned as being blind guides, leaders who abused the people of God as they had done with the man born blind. And what we will see in chapter 10 is that he is now, against that background, going to present himself as the good leader whom God had sent to do what Israel's bad leaders hadn't done, namely, to rescue them from harm and to provide them with abundant life. He is the ruler that fallen human beings need. And of course, his name is Jesus. Jesus began his discourse in verses 1 through 6 by doing something which probably seems strange to the Pharisees that he was speaking to, to other Jews that were there, no doubt listening in. He just began describing some basic principles of shepherding, which would have been well known to most people in that agrarian society. The ancient Near East was largely agrarian, Crops, livestock, that was the major source of income for people, not stocks on Wall Street. uh, Israelites often kept sheep, shepherding, keeping flocks of sheep. That was quite common in that part of the Near East. Israelite shepherds would often bring their flocks of sheep together at night and they would house them in an enclosed pen with high walls. Don't do it, but if you, if you uh, Google sheep pen in Israel, you can see what they might have looked like. And a typical sheep pen would have one door, and a man would be appointed to guard that door all night to keep the sheep in and to keep predators out. And then in the morning, the shepherds would come back to the pen, and they would lead their flocks out to pasture, and often they could simply call to their sheep and their sheep would respond to his voice because it was familiar to them and they would come out and he would lead them out to pasture. Now, assuming these basic facts about shepherding in Israel, we see here that Jesus begins this discourse that is going to unfold in chapter 10. He begins in verses one through six by making two simple observations. First, in verses 1 through 3, he said that the true shepherd of the sheep uses the door to the sheep pen, and the doorkeeper lets him in because he has a right to the sheep. Anyone who tries to climb in to the pen over the wall isn't the shepherd, 
but is a thief or a robber. That's the first thing he says. And second, in verses 3 through 5, you see that he observes that when the shepherd calls to his sheep, they come out of the pen because they recognize his voice. Whereas if a stranger tries to call them, they run away because his voice is not familiar to them. Now, verse 6 tells us that after saying those two things, it says this, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. In other words, the Pharisees, the other Jews listening in as he said these things about shepherding, obviously these were just common knowledge to them. They understood the words that were coming out of his mouth, but they didn't understand what he meant by them. Like many of his parables, the meaning required some explanation. And that's what Jesus provides in verses 7 through 18. And what he explained was that these basic principles of shepherding, which he had articulated, they reflected truths about his own identity as the good and rightful leader of God's people over against the bad leaders that they had now and had had in times past. So first, reflecting upon what he had said about the door of a sheep pen, Jesus said this in verses 7 through 10. Look there. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now it becomes fairly clear at this point that the sheep Jesus is talking about here are the people of God. But not just the nation of Israel, his old covenant people, because later on in verse 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And that's almost certainly a reference to the Gentiles. He makes that kind of reference multiple times in the Gospel of John. Indeed, the sheep he is talking about here don't even include all of the people of Israel. Because down in verse 26, he told The Jews who didn't believe in them, in him, you are not my sheep. Rather, the sheep Jesus is describing here are almost certainly a reference to this new covenant community of his people. The church, as it would later be called, which would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles who were united to him now by faith who were saved by him and experienced the blessings that he secured through his atoning work. And so, verse 27, later on in the chapter, he would say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Pretty obvious. The sheep are those who are saved by Jesus. This is his new covenant community. Next, we notice that Jesus described himself in relation to these sheep, saying, I am the door of the sheep. That's verse 7. Now, stop for a second and realize this is the third 
of seven I am statements, which John uses in this gospel to reveal certain aspects of Jesus's identity and mission as the Christ, the Son of God. And the point of this I am statement is that like the door of a sheep pen, Jesus is the only legitimate way into the community of God's new covenant people. In verse 9, if you look there, he repeats the I am statement, but he adds a layer to our understanding of it. There he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, in John's gospel, the language of salvation is salvation from sins, guilt, and punishment. People are saved from death and from the wrath of God against them for their sin. So, for instance, back in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, saved from perishing, saved from condemnation. Again, in chapter 3, verse 36, that same chapter, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, saved from God's wrath. And Jesus is declaring here that he is the one who can offer condemned sinners salvation from the judgment their sins deserve, and he can grant them access, entrance into the community of his people. He is the door of the sheep. Then, as part of God's flock, these sheep would, quote, go in and out and find pasture. In other words, they would experience the peace that comes from knowing that the all-powerful, all-good, all-wise God of the universe, now come down in human flesh, is their shepherd, He watches over them with unceasing vigilance to care for them out of his deep and steadfast love. Remember how Paul put it in Romans 8, 37, that through all the perils of life in this fallen world, we are, he says, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the sheep also enjoy the the abundant blessings which God loves to lavish upon his covenant people. They go in and out and find pasture. You remember how Paul explained all these blessings in Ephesians 1? He said he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that included their election in eternity past, the forgiveness of their sins through Christ's blood, their adoption into his family as sons, wisdom and insight through faith in the gospel, the assurance of our eternal inheritance in the age to come through the sealing of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then as Paul added in Ephesians 2.7, God will continue to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in the coming ages. So Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. See, those who enter the community of God's new covenant people, the church, 
through Jesus Christ, they're not going to enjoy just a, a Spartan life. They're not even simply going to have all their needs met by God. Oh, no. Rather, as Jesus went on to say in verse 10, what does he say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What that means is that he would give to his sheep more than what they need. Indeed, more than what they could ever think or ask for. What Paul describes in Ephesians as the unsearchable riches of Christ. In short, those who come to Jesus and are received into the flock of his people by faith will be very, very happy sheep. And how? How does a sinful human being condemned and perishing, enter by Jesus to receive these blessings, to go in and out and find pasture. Well, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly in these verses, but it is repeated throughout the book. Indeed, it's the whole purpose of the book. You remember, you get to the end, and John reflects back upon what he has written in John 20, 30-31, and he says this, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as you hear the testimony of the Apostle John in this book, or in the rest of the New Testament, by the other apostles, about who Jesus is, and what he came to do, you must believe in him. You must trust in him to save you as he promised. That's it. And then you will be forgiven of your sins, even as you are repenting of them, and granted entrance into the flock of his new covenant people. As Jesus so famously put it back in chapter 3, verse 16, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But notice that Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. I think that definite article there is not insignificant. There is no other way into the sheepfold of God's flock, into the community of his new covenant people. Jesus is the one and the only door. Only by him can you be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He alone offers abundant life. As he would put it so clearly later on in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And why should we balk at that? In our natural state, we are all, as Paul put it, in Colossians 1.21, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, by nature, children of wrath. So it's not as if God owes us anything except the just punishment that our sins deserve. He didn't have to give us any way into his flock, but he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, to be our mediator to reconcile us to himself, to be a door 
that we might enter the fold of his new covenant people and enjoy the blessings of regeneration of heart, forgiveness of sins, sweet fellowship with him forever. Surely he has not treated us as our sins deserve, but he has been abundantly merciful and gracious to us to give us one door in Jesus Christ. Let us shudder to think what will happen to a person who spurns God's grace, who refuses to enter through the door he has opened, complaining that it's not fair to restrict us to that one door, to not allow us to enter through some other door, a door of our own choosing, the door of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Sikhism or animism or some other man-made religion. He's given us a door. We better take it. Indeed, notice the way Jesus not so subtly suggested that the leaders which Israel had at the moment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as well as the leaders they had had in times past, wicked kings, corrupt priests, false prophets, that they were illegitimate like a thief or a robber and that they would harm them if followed. So he says in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. The false teaching promoted by the Pharisees, for instance, it would not only leave them condemned and perishing in their sin, it wouldn't save them, but it would deceive them into pride and self-righteousness, thinking they were right with God through their external religious and moral works. As Jesus said in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And the same is true of, of every leader who would promote a way to God besides the gospel of Jesus Christ taught in Scripture. Jesus is the door into the fold of God. Only through him can sinners be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Any religious leader, for instance, who says otherwise is a thief and a robber who will lead your soul to destruction, however sincere they might be. So first, Jesus used the basic principles about shepherding, which he had articulated there in verses 1 through 6, to explain that he was the door of the sheep. Now second, he went on to explain that he was also the good shepherd. You know, two times in this passage, verse 11 and verse 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Here is the fourth of seven I am statements that John records in this book in order to reveal what it meant that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, in order to understand, though, the significance of this fourth I am statement, I am the good shepherd, we have to go back and look at the Old Testament backdrop that lies behind it. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, he is frequently described as being the shepherd of Israel. We all know the famous words of David, Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
But again, Psalm 80, verse 1, Asaph cried out to the Lord. He said, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. That's God. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Or Psalm 95, verse 7, the covenant people are led to sing. We know the words. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Or I think of Isaiah famously saying of the Lord, of Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 40, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And we could cite other passages like this. So, in the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of Israel. But in addition to this, the Lord often described the kings and other leaders of Israel, such as the priests and the prophets, as shepherds as well. That is, they were tasked, like under-shepherds, with leading and caring for his people on his behalf. But, in the Old Testament, over time, the leaders of Israel proved to be very bad shepherds. Shepherds who neglected and abused God's flock, leading them astray into unfaithfulness, into idolatry and immorality until they ended up ravaged by the consequences of sin. So the Lord condemned the shepherds of Israel and pronounced judgment upon them through the prophets. At the same time, though, he promised that in the last days, he would set over them one last great Davidic king, the Christ, the Messiah, who would finally be to them the good shepherd that they needed, who would lead them in righteousness, resulting in peace, and whose reign would never end. By far, the most powerful example of this. There are others, but the most powerful one is found in the Oracle of Ezekiel 34. You could turn there if you want and, and follow along here. I won't read the whole thing, but you see in verses 1 through 6, the Lord condemns the wicked shepherds of Israel because they neglected and abused the flock until they were left scattered throughout uh, in, throughout the earth in exile. Then he pronounced judgment upon the bad shepherds, verses 7 through 10, declaring that he was against them and that he would come and rescue his sheep out of their hand. And then finally, in verses 11 through 22, the Lord declares that he was going to step in and shepherd his people, his flock, rescuing them and caring for them the way the wicked under-shepherds that had led them into destruction should have done but didn't. So we read this in verses 11 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. 
I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then, after declaring so emphatically his intention to step in and shepherd his people in this way, the Lord finishes with this surprising statement in verses 23 and 24. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So God would shepherd his people in this future day by sending his Christ his Messiah, a descendant of David, to rule over them. And this end times shepherd would do all the things that the kings of Israel had failed to do, leading, protecting, providing for them as God himself wanted. And for over 300 years, after the last prophet had spoken, God's people waited for this promised good shepherd to arrive. And now you see, here we are, In John chapter 10, and we hear the man, Jesus of Nazareth, himself a descendant of David, crying out in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, I am the good shepherd. Do you see what he's saying? Against the background of these Old Testament promises, Jesus was claiming to be that ultimate Davidic king, The Christ whom God had promised to set over his people in the last days to rescue his sheep from perishing and to tend them in perfect righteousness forever, bringing them peace. After making this astonishing claim, Jesus then expanded on it in verses 11 through 16. Look again there. Back in John 10, 11 through 16, I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, I think there are three main points that Jesus is making there in those verses. First, he explains that unlike the many bad shepherds that Israel had had over the years and had at that time, who, like a hired hand, didn't really care about the sheep, Jesus was the rightful shepherd who truly cared about the sheep of God because they belonged to him. He was the Christ. Second, Jesus described the depth of his care for God's people as their true shepherd. You know, the current shepherds that they had, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they exploited the people. They oppressed God's people for their own personal gain. But Jesus, the good shepherd, 
would lay down his life for his sheep. And by this, Jesus didn't mean that he was going to be killed trying to protect them. You know, like a shepherd who is killed tragically trying to defend his sheep from a wolf or from a bear or from robbers. Rather, Jesus made it clear here in verse 18 that this was not the case. Speaking of his life that he would lay down, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus meant that he would willingly offer himself up unto death. Death on the cross. Why? We know from the rest of the New Testament to make atonement for the sins of his people before rising from the dead, taking his life up again so that he could rescue them from death and they could enjoy life forever with him. This self-sacrifice would be the ultimate proof, the ultimate demonstration that he was the good shepherd who truly loved his people, who was committed to their eternal well-being. And third, Jesus described the personal relationship that he had with his sheep as their good shepherd. There is a mutual familiarity between Jesus and his people, just like there is between a shepherd and his sheep. So Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You can't help but hearing the echo of Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant blessing. They shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And again in verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, the Gentiles. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice like sheep who know the voice of their shepherd. They would hear Jesus and they would recognize his voice. Jesus knows his sheep because As he said back in chapter 6, and as he would say again in chapter 17, the Father had given them to him, both from among the Jews and among the Gentiles. In other words, the sheep were, you could say, the elect of God, chosen to be the people of his Messiah, even before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 3. And these sheep also knew the good shepherd, so that when they heard his voice calling to them in the gospel, They believe and they come to him. They would come to him first for salvation. And then they would follow him, listening to his voice in the scriptures throughout their lives. Jesus said of them here, they will listen to my voice. And again, later in verse 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How do you know a sheep from one who's not a sheep? The sheep listen to the voice of God in the gospel and in the scriptures and they believe and they follow. Let's remember that these things have been written down for our instruction, beloved. In these verses, we hear a very happy announcement that there is a good shepherd. This is the leader that humanity needs. He has come. He is calling this morning Through this passage, he is calling sinners who are lost and perishing. Do you remember how he looked out upon Israel and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd? He's calling them to come to him that they might find forgiveness of sins through his death. 
that they might enter through him into the fold of God where they will dwell with peace and security under his care forever. So if you are here this morning and you hear his voice, turn, turn from your sins, come to him in faith, submit to the comfort of his rod and his staff. You'll find rest for your souls in the fold of God. He won't let you go astray. He will guard you into eternal life. He'll not let you go hungry. He will feed your souls with his words. He will not let you be devoured by your enemies. He'll watch over your soul. He'll protect you until the day when he finally crushes all your enemies under his feet. Jesus is the good shepherd. If you haven't done so already, come to him even this morning. Enter by him. Be saved. Go in and out, find pasture. And brothers and sisters, we who have already come to Jesus in faith, we who are already in the fold under his tender care, these words of our shepherd are a comfort and a joy to our souls. If you are a sheep of Christ this morning, then you have belonged to him even before he called you and gathered you into his fold. Because God has given you to Jesus before the world began. In fact, Jesus spoke of you before you were ever born. In this passage, did you see it? Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That's you. This is what theologians call the doctrine of unconditional election. And if you are a sheep this morning, then your shepherd has died particularly for you. He sacrificed himself to save you. He didn't do that for those who aren't his sheep. This is why he said in verse 15, I will lay down my life for my sheep. And then in verse 26, he told the Jews who didn't believe in him, you are not my sheep. He didn't die for them in the way he did for you. This is what theologians call the doctrine of definite atonement. And these precious truths are spoken here not as abstract doctrines, but they're spoken to comfort you, to secure your soul as the sheep of God. We have a good shepherd. We have belonged to him for all eternity. And he so loves us, he's so committed to our well-being that he has laid down his life, particularly for us, and he's risen again to intercede for us in heaven so that we will never perish and no one will snatch us out of his hand. Knowing this, well, we can be perfectly confident. We can be secure in his care and his protection all of our days. Not only this, but we can also be confident that we will flourish as the sheep of Jesus. Jesus has no sheep that are all ragged and skinny. He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Under the care of Jesus, our good shepherd, we have hope even when we're struggling even when we've wandered off, because he is there to correct us, to seek us out, to bring us back. His rod and his staff, they comfort us, as David said. Under the care of Jesus, you can have peace, even through trial, even through suffering and loss, because he will bind up your wounds and carry you in his bosom. Under the care of Jesus, you have a certain hope, even through adversity, And persecution at the hands of the wicked because he is there to protect you, to 
to give you life even on the other side of death. As you grow old and weak, or when you're sick and dying, your good shepherd is there with you. He watches over you. He will care for you all the way to the end. Even though you find yourself helpless at times, despairing, cast down like a sheep flipped over on its back, unable to get up. You have a good shepherd who is strong. He is vigilant. He watches out for your soul. You can trust in him to restore your soul. He will pick you up. He will carry you in his bosom. He will set you on your feet again. We can't fail to prosper under the strong and wise care of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you have a good shepherd. Rejoice in his love. Rest in his care, in his protection. Follow him with joy wherever he leads. He's laid down his life for you. Is he not always going to lead you to green pastures? Don't listen to your flesh. Your flesh which says the pastures are greener over here and would lead you away from Christ. Your shepherd knows what is best. Trust him. Submit to him. Follow him all your days, wherever he leads. And by the way, believers, he has other sheep who are not of this fold. He must call them as well. So tell others about this good shepherd. Call them to come to Christ. This should be a motivation to go to the mission field, to bring the good news of Christ to those who perhaps are lost sheep, whom the Father has given to the Son, who will be called home to him through your witness. Because when their shepherd calls, the sheep hear his voice. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, They use their authority to exploit and abuse their people for their own personal gain. We need a ruler who will lead his people with righteousness and with sacrificial love, bringing them peace, bringing them joy. And we'll do that forever. This morning we've heard about him. Jesus is the good shepherd. He has come to call lost sinners to himself and whoever believes in him will enjoy abundant life as his sheep. Let's pray together. And as we pray, if the men who are going to be leading the Lord's, or serving the Lord's Supper would come, when I'm done praying, Sam will come up and lead us in this. Our great God, what can we say? That you would set over us the good shepherd Our Lord Jesus, the word become flesh to dwell among us. That he is Yahweh, taken up us as his sheep, who will shepherd us with perfect righteousness and lead us into perfect peace. Lord, we need him more than anything. Please help us to come under his care willingly. For those that are still lost, that they would hear his voice and come, even this morning. And for us who are his sheep, that we would continue to respond to his word, trusting in him, believing him, following him all our days. 
Lord, shepherd us home all the way to the end. We know that you will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.